The Competitive 40K Network presents Art of War. Art of War. Strategy and tactics. Discussions with the best players on the planet. Now your host, Nick Nanavati. Hey, everybody. Welcome back to another episode of the Art of War podcast. I am joined by one of my oldest 40K friends, the oldest in length of time knowing him, of course, uh, Andrew Gagneau. Good to be here. And I was waiting for that joke. I was like, which way is he going with this? <laughs> I didn't go anywhere. I just said, <laughs> clarify the time that I've known you. Andrew and I go way back, obviously. He was uh, captain to America for, was it four years, Andrew? Captain for three and played for three. Captain for three, played for three, and I was on the winning U.S. team as my teammate. Good friend, good hobbyist, excellent person. Oftentimes, winning best overalls are competing for them in all the biggest super majors. Today, we're going to talk about a story of a game that Andrew and I played. But before we actually get into that story, I need you guys to know that Andrew and I have had a record, a duel, a, a battle of wits that has transcended time. It's, it's like years itself, in which Andrew's been besting me in the last, last few. So in the most recent, I have come for him. Yeah, I've, I've never been more depressed when I've lost a game because I think my winning streak for you is like, Tony told me this once years ago, and it was like, he hasn't, you actually, have, Nick hasn't beat you since sixth or seventh. And it's been like eight years. Now, part of that was because I dodged you for like four or five years when I was real bad and you were much better. But let's ignore that for a minute. So this, this did break the streak, unfortunately. A streak is a streak. You had me for a long time. And you know, and now we just never the played. last game we played was 2018. It's been a minute. So, <laughs> but you've been hitting the scene. You've been on it. You were invited to the GWS Open finale. You did really well there. In general, you've been winning tournaments left, right, and center. Yeah, no, it's been it's been fun. I think I think post COVID, everyone kind of had a little bit of a come back to the hobby moment, and I, I really got a little bit more to the the painting side, even than I previous, previously was. But it was it was fun, kind of like getting the wheels spinning again and knocking the rust off. And I'm pretty happy with where I've landed. I'm usually good for an X and one or or something like that, and have all good games. So pretty happy with it. Yeah, no, absolutely. And that's why uh, you're an exemplary person. I think why ultimately Games Workshop puts you on their stream for an <laughs> exhibition match. So that's ultimately what we're here to talk about, everybody. We are talking about the exhibition match that Andrew Ganyu and I played at the GW US Open Kansas City. We, in fact, played the wonderful world of 10th edition. I was playing Eldari versus Andrew's Astromilitarum. Really awesome game, really back and forth. We both learned a ton, and we're here to share it with you. Additionally, this is only part one of a two-part conversation. So while part one, we're going to go give you right here. We're going to go through our game in detail and our thoughts about it. Part two is the good stuff. That's for our patrons. You can subscribe at AOW40K.com. In part two, Andrew and I are going to go on and extrapolate a a little bit. We're going to figure out what the meta is, at least what we think it is. What's good? What's bad? What's left? What's right? We're going to all go back and forth, Andrew and I, picking our brains. So if you want the insider scoop of what's going on in that conversation, do us a favor and subscribe on AOW40K.com. All right, Andrew, tell me about this game that we played. How, tell me about your perspective about it. Like, paint the picture for me. So, I mean, I've obviously kind of, I was, I was thinking about this for a little while, and I'd already chosen guard because, you know, part of the choice of taking guard for me is, one, I, I it's probably the army I've played the most over the over the course of time in, in my 40K history since, like, the late 90s. Um I played it against you a lot, so once I knew I was playing you, I was like, it'd be pretty funny to play Blobguard against Nick. You know, this used to be a thing. It kind of could be a thing now. It um, really is. It's kind of a thing. It reminded me of that. 
Yeah, and I was I was bringing it because you know I was also bringing guard to uh, to the tournament, so it was kind of an easy choice because I only had to bring like half of an additional army rather than the whole new one. Um, and they're kind of nice. They're they're an interesting MSU thing. Um, once I knew that you were taking Eldar, um, you know, and I had some input into my list. Um, I found out afterwards, but I was I was kind of happy with my choice because I think it was a part of my strategy with the game was thinking about okay, I probably need to play mission and endure because I think Eldar and you know this is kind of historically who they were too you know they you know arrogance only matched by the firepower of their guns something like that's the quote um, they're pretty killy you know they've got a lot of power and I think guard trying to just straight up out muscle them go to the center was probably going to land me in hot water so I, I my goal when I came into that was try and play towards towards mission and being a little more MSU and, and I don't hate how it turned out no, I think you did a pretty good job of that. You were in the mission for most of the game, pretty much. My perspective is a little bit different. I kind of got thrown into it by Mike on the call. <laughs> Not to be so bomb with it, but um, basically he called me up. And he was like, do you want to be in a really cool exhibition match? And I was like, that sounds awesome. And he's like, what do you want to play? And obviously at this point, I had no inclination of what was good, bad, or anything. So I was like, I like Eldar, I like demons. And then he like wrote me an Eldar list. So I kind of just showed up and... Here we are. Um, but it took a little bit of time to read my data sheets, and man, fate dice are good. So that helped. Yes. Yeah. I think one of the cool things, my takeaway from from the Eldar book, at least, is I think it's a book that it just has it has a lot of legs, and it's going to be fun for players. Um, yes, I know that you know when the, some of the, the previews were done, people lost their mind over some of the powers of things, uh, as in like the, the strength of things. Um, but I think even from your list, you can kind of tell, like, it's hard to find a bad unit in that book. And there's a lot of flavor to a lot of them. So I think it's going to be interesting that, you know, even if a couple things get toned down to bring it back, you know, it's hard when you're doing a whole new meta to actually get things perfectly balanced. But even if some stuff gets toned down, I think there's so much variety in that book that it's still going to be it's going to be really interesting for players for a long time because you had a, a whole smorgasbord of units. There, there wasn't a lot of doubling up. Yeah, I really liked my army. Just to kind of go through it, it's going off memory now, but I basically had a Farseer Skyrunner, a uh, Foot Farseer, a Bike Warlock, a unit of six Shuriken Scatter Laser Jet Bikes, uh, 10 Dire Avengers, 10 Scorpions, Garandris and Ajman joined to those, two to five Rangers, three solo Vipers Bright Lances, a Warwalker with a couple Bright Lances, two solo Shadow Weavers, two Fire Prisms, those were awesome. And a unit of 10 Storm Guardians. Oh, and two units of five spiders. So it was, like you said, it's a nice smorgasbord of an army. Uh, I think I had a Wave Serpent as well. I had a, a real battle force of a list. Um, and from just playing it and maneuvering on table, it very much felt like playing Eldar. I was fast. I was very powerful. I was oh, maybe tough because Fate Dice were manipulative, so I could pass very critical saves to not die when I needed to. Or when my opponent needed me to, rather. But in general, it very much played and felt like Eldar, which I enjoyed. It felt like your army was like trying to do guard stuff, right? You had like these artillery, you had torax, you had infantry, but I was I was really missing like the heavy firepower I'm used to seeing. Like there was no bass, there was no wyverns. Rather, sorry, you had bass and wyverns, but there's no Lehman Russes. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I mean, so when I tried to make it, I, I went for more of kind of like a mobile mixed arms list because um, I thought it'd be fun to have like the the toraxes. In in hindsight, I would have preferred Chimera, but. Um, because I think flamers are really neat in this edition, um, which watch, yeah, which yeah for Overwatch, which hasn't been a thing in a long time. It's kind of like when you said Azurman and Karandras. I mean, 
people know they exist, but when was the last time you saw one on the list? It's pretty cool. Yeah. Um, unfortunately, I got rid of a lot of my my old guards, so I actually didn't have those models. I have some unpainted chimeras, but I had gotten rid of all my old like mechvet chimeras from the you know the when we first started playing like 2008 2009 time period. So I didn't have I didn't have all of the models. Russes, you know, they're they're currently so spammed let's just be honest i mean even my list you know in, in ninth has has five right now um that i was trying to shy away from that a little bit um and there's also something odd about russes i think when you're when you're a guard player playing into a lot of a a meta that's kind of unknown because you are very susceptible like you're not you're not going to out mobile eldar they're going to get the first shot probably um and that's going to be true of a, a lot of armies coming up and i think sticking your deck out and potentially just getting blown up for a decent chunk of points wasn't exactly how I wanted to approach the game. So I shied away from them. I think I would probably put one in in the future. Um, but yeah, so my list, you gave a run through yours. I'll try and remember mine. I had two units of mortars. I had two wyverns. I had two basilisk. Um, I had four torox, each with a 10-man deathcore Cree unit with some special weapons, the good old 10-mans. Two 20-mans that I had with uh, the same specials. I think I did like melt a grenade plasma because that's what i had built i'd probably put some flamers in in the future um command squad for each one one had a primary psyker one had a gold leontis um five rattlings who i loved and then six count sentinels that i think i put in units of one two three um it, it, you know, it worked out pretty well i think the artillery was was solid um i didn't love mortars which might be the first time in 10 years i've said that said that um, Especially playing against Eldar, right? Like this is the game where mortars are going to kill me. Yeah, right. That, that's the, that's the one they should have. And I don't think they really did anything the whole time. They have some weird Overwatch um, rules that are kind of interesting, actually, for some people. But in hindsight, like I kind of like just having like a basilisk and a wyvern. One of the big mistakes I made in our game was, you know, and I think it's fine to make these mistakes, especially early edition. Uh, I forgot to put their like their penalty rules on you each time, and I think it's. I think when you first chuck dice in a new edition, you have to kind of like not stress about it. And if you forget some of your some of your rules, like this would have been helped me. Yeah. Um, there's always more games. It takes a little while to try and play a good game or a competitive game of of new edition and be digesting the data sheets too. <laughs> there's so much like I, I feel like I've played four or five games now, and I'm starting to get a real grasp of the missions. I don't know all the secondaries or anything, but all the different mission rules, but. I understand the flow of them, and I think I get most of the rules in my data sheet right. And this is like four or five games in, and yeah. trying to, so I can learn to teach this stuff. No, it's it's definitely a challenge, and I think there's going to be some adjusting for people, um, as as there always is when a, when a big edition change drops. I, I have several friends that are this is their first edition change, and it is it is a, a joy to watch. It's like a, what is that like? I don't know that feeling. All the people I hang out with have been like forty k diehards. You know, my my friend Eric and, and a few others like they really haven't seen an edition change. They're like, oh my god, all this stuff's happening. Overwhelmed, and I'm like, yeah, just lean into the madness. It's it's gonna be fine. Does <laughs> <laughs> so, anyone like this guy is falling? I think, yeah, no, I've had some of that in like my local community of people being a little worried, like, is such and such going to be good? Or, you know, is this going to happen? I'm like, look, this happens every edition. Everyone gets all worried. Uh, there's a couple crazy months. Um, the the flocks that happened in... Razor ring flocks. Razor ring flocks. Like, there's always a few months of madness as, you know, when, when testing happens, 
there's a limited amount of time that can be dedicated to it just with the production process. And there's a limited amount of time that happens, you know, because there's only so many testers, right? There's not that many. As soon as you chuck that game into the wild within like a day, there's probably been more games played in that day by like an order of magnitude than ever got tested. So some stuff does happen, right? And some of it, yes, should probably be caught a little better. Maybe no one's perfect, but um, I think when you when you look at it, you know, you have a crazy three months, everything kind of settles down, and then we're back into the status quo of like a fairly solid game for the next three years or something like that. There's growing pains. I, I don't know. I'm never too worried about addition changes. It's kind of fun. It throws everything into chaos, and then you get to figure something new out. It's a, it's a cool process. Yeah, I love it personally, especially like when edition starts to get stale. Like ninth edition wasn't necessarily stale, but it was definitely kind of solved. Like the meta was relatively known. The missions were these yep. are the good secondaries. These are what you do for primary. Do that. Um, so I really like the shakeup. The new missions seem wild. I mean, we played Servo Skulls. Talk about a mission. We were kicking the Servo Skulls back and forth. I haven't seen objectives move since the Relic. There's three of them. I, I forgot the Relic was a mission. Yeah, no, I mean, it, Servo Skulls was a very involved mission. I think it's one of the more involved ones, but I'll say like that will definitely take some practice to get quicker at because both of us were kind of getting confused during it. But I mean, how many times have we ever played, probably never other than the Relic, where all of the objectives move every turn, every player turn? So it's a lot. But at the same time, it creates like a really interactive push and pull, which is kind of nice. Um, where like you're kind of doing more stuff on your opponent's turn when you're trying to set things up. So that is that is a little more nice than like a really, really basic mission. Yeah. It's it's cool, especially since there's a different mission primary rule to go with every mission primary and the objectives kind of rotate with your deployment map. It gives the game a lot of replayability, whereas you used to have nine missions, which was an improvement over six missions, which was an improvement over three. Like now we have like a lot of different ways to play 40k, which I genuinely really like. So from our game, what do you think was the most surprising thing to you? Just playing 10th edition, it's different to 9th. What do you think caught you off guard? I didn't catch that. Um, I think for me, part of it was, one, remembering all the rules in the data sheets. I'm so used to having you know, the solved edition where I've got 73 strats. I'm making that number up. But let's be honest, I use four. Um, and you, know, you kind of have like your, your one-two step. You've got your rhythm for your games. Um, having all the rules and the data cards at first is going to be hard for me to track, I think. Um, the mission, I know we just hit on it. That was the biggest thing to me. Um, getting used to that flow of objectives moving or there just being more involved stuff. Um, getting back to the, the drawn tactical objective decks was just interesting. I, I generally like drawing objectives. It hurt me at moments. Um, but it's, it's kind of interesting having something different that you didn't know was going to happen every turn. It makes you have to kind of like play a little more flexible and kind of plan to be able to do a variety of things um, versus just saying like, I got to bring it down. I'm going to kill vehicles and I got banners. I already raised them last turn. So we're, we're good. We're good. Now we're just going to kill each other. You know, there's a little more going on, which I think caught me off guard because I kind of had my mindset of how I was going to play the game. And then I was like, oh, crap, I got to get to the corners. I'm not set up to be in the corners right now, but how am I going to scan that thing? Yeah, no, that definitely caught me off guard as well. Just like the variety of secondaries you could just draw. Because um, once you think it'd be something like engaging on runs or behind enemy lines, you know, those are secondaries that everyone knows about. But then 
do actions in corners. And I'm like, okay, that's new. That's different. Weird. Um, and then one thing I didn't love about that is that it felt a little win more to me. Um, if you had board control and you were yeah. able to go stand wherever you wanted, huh, look, I score points. And if you're losing and you're cowering, all of a sudden, uh, I drew behind enemy lines. I drew capture enemy outposts. Even I was playing a game the other day and I was not winning. And I drew storm hostile objective. I'm like, I can't even do this. Yep. I drew that one against you and it felt, it felt unfortunate because I think in one of my early turns, like turn one or two, I got one that was like being his deployment zone. I was like, well, that's not happening. Um, I just don't have the movement to get there. And then as soon as you took over board control on turn three and I was really pushed back, I started getting ones that were like flip objectives or, or be over here. And I was like, I have no way to get there. So I, these points are dead to me. Whereas everything that you draw started to get better on the flip side of that though. Um, taking board control is a part of the game, right? And the more board control you have makes your secondaries easier. That probably does make sense. Um, but yes, it can make a game run away a little bit as we saw. I don't think that's necessarily a problem. Like you said, like it's a strategy based war game, like capturing the board is probably a big part of winning that game. I feel like like sort of able to just score all your secondary points without capturing the board. It's kind of gamey in a way. Yeah. And if you think of any, like just completely other types of games, you know, when you control more of the map or more of the, the resource generation in the game, it generally does spiral a bit. Um, which is kind of the point, you know, you're supposed to be jockeying for position on the board and in some ways that's good, right? Cause it helps tone down sometimes like, um, really stationary, like spammy gun line, that sort of a thing, because like they do have to come out and be in places or they're going to be sitting back, blowing you off the table and then go, Oh, I got storm hostile objectives. Crap. I'm nowhere near them. Oh, I got being his deployment zone or being a bunch of different corners. I'm just in one corner shelling him. Um, so, you know, it actually, it might end up being a somewhat positive thing for um, forcing people to to need to be in places for board control because um, they might draw something that says, don't be standing at home. Yeah, I mean, without like a force organization chart, we just have rule of three basically keeping us in check. And it's really easy to make a sit there and table somebody gun line list, especially with the increased amounts of indirect fire. And the fact that board control and mission primary and secondaries actively want you to be flexible and go do things that are not just table your opponent. I think that's a great counterbalance in a way. Um, for me, the most ex- surprising thing was the mission called me off guard, but I kind of expected that. Like, it was be wild. The thing that I didn't see coming was how much more involved your opponent's turn is. You'd like overwatch or just counter moving. Like I had things like phantasm to let me move during your turn. Uh, things like rapid ingress is a stratagem. The, there's a lot of strategies I'm seeing in these upcoming indexes that are, you know, pick units up at the end of your opponent's turn and then put them back down or something. There's just so much more to do in your opponent's turn. It's both challenging in a new, exciting way because there's so many more dimensions to think about in the game, but it's also a little logistically challenging because it's like there's no more bathroom break during my opponent's movement <laughs> at my Overwatch. <laughs> Yeah, there's no more walking away and saying, like, I trust you. You can go ahead and just do your movement phase. Tell me when you get to shooting. Your opponent's like, yes, please. <laughs> yeah, no, it's like, oh, the sequence of which I move my units matters now. That's so annoying. Yes. Like with um, an all-fly army, I figure I can just go where I go. But no, no, no. And flag on nerf. Oh, no. 
No, you're right. I mean, that that was really interesting how how involved you are. And I know I've been thinking about the like things like the rapid ingress and, and different versions that books have of that or modifications they do to it. And I shouldn't say books, indices, you know what I'm talking about. And um, I think it's really interesting. And I think that like that's going to be something that, you know, I'm calling it now and I'll be completely wrong. And everyone can point to this and be like, what an idiot that uh, that good players are able to kind of exploit more. Um I'm just, looking at rapid ingress, and I'm just like, how can I use this? It looks so strong. Yeah, there's there's got to be some really interesting ways to like set screens in your opponent's turns or block things off they didn't realize were going to happen, or maybe you can come in and you have a heroic thing, or I don't know. There, there's some interesting plays probably um, for rapid ingress that I think are gonna are gonna come in the future, and I'm I'm excited to see what people kind of figure out with them, and then to carry on their coattails as soon as they do. <laughs> One of the things I haven't figured out how to utilize it for yet, but as I'm, I'm imagining, like, after my pillin's done moving, I can probably find a spot nine inches away that's just behind a wall. And if they don't have good indirect fire or anything, that's when my unit starts its next turn. That's awesome. Yeah. And then you've got to move from there and everything else. I think I think there's some there's some really cool things with that. You know what I actually really like, too, that we should mention? The map. I actually really liked... I've always kind of been a proponent of, you know, the the big squares... That we have in in the past season, you know they're they're good. Um, they give you places to stage, but they do get a bit stale because it's just four big blocks typically. Um, and GW's done the best they can with that kind of thing to modify the layouts of them um, and provide enough blocking to play the game. I really like more pieces that are smaller. It creates more interesting fire lanes. It gets more dynamic, so it's less easy to just like plan. Like I always go to this corner and then I threaten these charges here. You know, so with you, the more smaller pieces is just way it, get, it has so many more dynamics to play around. Yeah, and you can't do hide giant job. things, but at the same time, you have like different places to stage units. Um, it was it was interesting. You were doing a great job making use of the different angles, like I where I would move to like get line of sight, like you would quickly pull yourself out of line of sight with casualty removal and stuff like that. It was just really clever angle play. And like you're right with the big four four by one by one foot. GW ruins. It's just like you have three angles on the table total. Like you, you know them, you learn them. That's that. Yeah, and it's also it gives you places to like reset your army, right? So like in the current one, if someone moves up into one of those four squares and like they have a really fast charging army with fly or something like that, they can just say like I'm going to charge whatever I want within two feet of me or something like that. And that's very hard to do anything about as an opponent. Um, because your only place to hide is those ruins, which are that close. Um, but in this one, with more smaller pieces, those distances are different. You can always hop back to a different piece that might still give you angles because there's just more pieces. Like, I loved putting the Toroxes down the flanks um, to try and pick up some of your side pieces to make you spread out a bit. Uh, I love the Rattlings, those cute little buggers. I'm so glad I still have those old metal ones and I didn't get rid of them. So I can't believe you had those things. I was like, what are these? They just showed up out of nowhere. I have 30 of the old metal original Ratlings. They are so ugly cute. I remember there was one WTC like back in 6th, 7th, or very early 8th edition where you were just like Ratling spam, and then you have like so many of those things. For the record, I don't think that worked out well for me, but I felt very clever at the time. That sounds like a lot of the ideas from the past. Yeah, that, that's a lot of those you know ninth list ideas. <laughs> So what do you think was actually no before I ask that question, let's talk about the elephant in the room, your stratagem to just come back to life. I killed you had seven sentinels in your list, and I killed like 15 of the things. I think I had six sentinels, and I think you killed 12. Um actual numbers here. 
of my two four two twenty man blobs, I think you killed. You may I may have only brought one of those back. I think I brought two. I think I brought two. So I think you killed forty extra guardsmen, six extra sentinels. I think that was that was it. He says with air quotes. Um, I think it was what, what kept me in the game. It didn't solve all my problems because as they came back on, they had uses, but they kept coming on further and further back because you quickly picked up on it and just kept screening me out. So you didn't leave me big gaps in the backfield. Um, I mean, being that I was playing Eldar, I have the luxury of just being able to extend my screens as far as I want all the time. Um, most factions can't do that. So Eldar is its own beast. Like, we all know what's going on with them. But in terms of, like, Astro Militarum, were you just using that strat to, like, hold on that game? Or in other games, do you, do you feel like that strat is, like, an integral part of your strategy and just part of how your codex works? Um, I, think it's, I think it's both, right? In that game, it was definitely the ability to hold on. I just, like, I was running out of bullets, so I needed more to fire. Um, I needed more units to trade with you because you were just killing me so fast. So for that one, it was it was kind of holding me in there. Um, and I think that there's some really interesting ways that you're going to play with it in the future because, like, you may want to get a unit killed to reset it somewhere else. And your opponent may need to figure out that, like, they should try and leave that big unit of guardsmen alive with a few because if they don't, it might just reappear full strength in a different part of the board where they're not ready for it, right? Not everyone's as mobile as Eldar, as you said. So, like, if someone, like, if, if against a lot of other players that maybe couldn't go down their sides as well and block things out, if that 20-man, now, of course, you do lose the characters and everything else. The, the, the thing that comes back on is not quite the thing that was. Um, but if that would have just popped into someone's backfield, a lot of people put a lot of forward pressure in games, and then they leave backfields really open. Because how is your opponent going to get over there? Do they have a deep strike mechanic in the game? No, they have no reserves. But you kind of force your opponent to have to screen all game because as soon as they kill something, it might just reappear in their backfield because the way strat reserves works now. So it's it's kind of neat. Um, uh, you can actually show up out of strategic reserve any point in the game now. It doesn't have to be just be by turn three. Yeah, and it was, I don't know. I mean, I think that they aren't that killy to concern me too much. Um, I think those 20 mans flop a fair bit. But, you know, if someone leaves a, a vulnerable flank or, or some backfield open, even just being able to just teleport across the board because you died is pretty great. So there's a lot of utility to that that I think is going to go beyond just like, you know, ooh, I got another kill a unit back. I have so much free points. I think there's no, going to be like mobility that comes from it. Yeah, you're absolutely right. It's like putting 20 more guardsmen in your backfield is not an impressive feat, but... Putting 20 guardsmen where it hurts or putting three sentinels where it hurts, that can be quite devastating. Like, you even started to on turn five. You outflying three sentinels into my backfield because if I turn five, I finally ran out of some screens. And you tried to hit a yellow nine into a farseer to steal a corner. Now, it didn't work out the way the scenario was set up. But had you hit that and then you rolled what you had rolled for your gambit, you literally, literally would have scored 31 points that game. Yeah, I mean, so that one was weird. That was that was a result of me just not being familiar enough with the new charge mechanics, right? I think I had to hit like a massively long charge, and I think we both figured out that it was never going to be possible. Um, I think it was a it was a clever play. Maybe I'll pat myself on the back. It was definitely um, clever. It was like if my first year was maybe two inches closer to the corner, you would have. Had yeah, it. you needed to be an inch or two closer because the way the charge worked, I had to like. You can't just intentionally, like, you know, run away from a charge and then just consolidate into a corner and be like, I'm here. Um, you have to actually move to base people if you can. So um, 
that was where my downfall was. I was like, no, I'm still half a base out, and I can't move towards there after the combat's done, even if I win, because I have to go towards the objective, which is not in the corner. So it was a good idea that did not pan out, but it was still a, an interesting ability to make that play. Now, you can that play could have happened without having to like be the backbone of a gambit, um, <laughs> and it could have been really cool too, right? Like if you would have only had a Farseer, five Rangers, or something like that, or, like, you know, the demon armies that have, like, you know, two guys rubbing sticks together in the back because they want to throw everything at someone in ninth edition, and all of a sudden 20 Guardsmen shows up in the back. They've either got to go backwards or they've got to lose their home objective, and there's a lot of issues to that. So, I don't know. I think I think Guard are interesting. I don't think that they quite have the raw power, um, maybe the Eldar do in some ways, but I think they have a lot of really interesting mission plays, so it kind of goes both ways. And I probably, as I mentioned earlier on, like, not as many games get played in testing as get played on the first day of release. Um, there will be some great guard players that figure out a lot of stuff that I did not in my fever dream of trying to write that help out with that list and then play a game at midnight. Um, that will come up with some really clever stuff that I never saw that will probably make guard pretty cool. Um, so hopefully I didn't do them too much shame in that first game, but um, I think there'll be more to come. No, I think he did a great job, especially going for the gambit. It was like an epic story, like timeline. They couldn't have written that better. Yeah, when they said you're going to go for the gambit, I was like, all of the all of the serial skulls are in my deployment zone. Of course, we're <laughs> going for scoring another point the other way. <laughs> <laughs> That's awesome. So I have one more question I want to ask you before we head on over to part two and talk about where we think the game is headed in terms of a meta and what's good, what's bad. But um, what did you find most enjoyable of our little game? I think the interaction during the other player's turn. I think that was what I found the most enjoyable. And I'm kind of stealing something that you said there. But, you know, I I will say I did really feel more involved in the game, which I really liked. Um, Yeah, I agree. I've played some people that I know definitely like, and, and I'm guilty of it too, that get a little more methodical or they get you know, their brain breaks and they just sit there staring and then they take, you know, some long turn and I'm just sitting there on the other side of the table, you know, not with the self-awareness that I do that too. I'm being like, man, I'm kind of bored. Um, our game was long, right? Cause we were both on stream. We were talking, we were also reading our data cards and figuring out our rules. But I, I never really noticed how late it had gotten because I was involved in the whole game. And that was really nice. That's true. We started the game at seven and we finished like past 11. It was like, a little- yeah, something and i only checked right around 11 o'clock and i was like man it's probably been more than three hours oh it's been four and something wow okay. <laughs> time flies when you're having fun as they say you know. told me to make it to the end nick so what was what was your favorite thing what was my favorite thing aside from destroying the streak i mean that's <laughs> <laughs> that <laughs> is it. that's perfect <laughs> all right everybody you can learn how to destroy the streak all over with Gagno in part two Check it out on AOW40K.com. That's our patron. That's where we're going to go and discuss where we think the meta is headed with all of our vast knowledge of 10th edition. Thanks so much for listening, everybody, and we'll catch you next week. Like what you just listened to? Check out Art of War Down Under and Art of War Unbroken on the competitive 40K network. The Art of War40K.com. 